It's really wonderful to be uh, giving this talk at what is the beginning of Black History Month in the USA and what is the beginning of LGBT History Month here in the UK. Um, and also tomorrow begins Race Equality Week in the UK. So it couldn't be uh, more pertinent to our topic to be thinking about uh, James Baldwin at this particular point in the year. I want you to imagine that you are born into a world in which your very being, your existence, your taking up of space, your breathing is illegal. I want you to, in your mind's eye, think of a world in which the color of your skin meant the constant and relentless possibility of death. A world where you had to be educated separately from others, considered a superior race, you couldn't marry anyone who wasn't of your ethnicity. You couldn't vote because of your skin color. Your enslaved ancestors haven't had freedom from their white masters for even 60 years, and the crack of the whip and the clang of the shackles lives on in your memory. I want you to imagine a world where people who loved how you loved seemed doomed to die from a disease that many called God's punishment. I want you to imagine a world in which you would have seen people who looked just like you, unalive, swaying from trees. You lived and were born into a world where you were told that you were, just because of your color, savage, sexually perverted, worthy of sterilization, and where the majority of people clung to the myth that you quite liked this subjugated existence for which you were, according to the church and the state and the academy, apparently born. And in that world, where the powers of the society, church and the state were against your very existence, where they colluded together against you, in that world you decide to tell the whole truth about how you feel and who you are, despite the cost. In fact, you're so courageous that you have the strength to tell people that the very truths you share about yourself actually tell other people some hard facts about who and what they are. Because part of what you feel and experience is a reflection of the truths others do not want to see. In a nutshell, that is who James Baldwin was. Someone who spoke the truth, or as he put it, chose to be a witness. It's no surprise then that the one recording we have of him singing is of him singing about the God he knew and loved in the words of that wonderful hymn, so loved by us black Christians. Precious Lord, take my hand. Lead me on, let me stand. I am tired, I am weak, I am worn. Through the storm, through the night, lead me on to the light. Take my hand, precious Lord, lead me home. Where my way grows drear, precious Lord, linger near. Where my light is almost gone, hear my cry, hear my call. Hold my hand, lest I fall. Take my hand, precious Lord, lead me home. But the darkness appears and the night draws near and the day is past and gone. At the river I stand, guide my feet, hold my hand. Take my hand, precious Lord, lead me home. 
To talk about James Baldwin is to speak of a human being who existed unafraid. Unafraid of himself, unafraid of others, unafraid of the truth. He was prophetic. He described himself at one time as a socialist, but for a period as a Trotskyite. Trotskyite. He was a tiny man, but he took up space as someone unapologetically black and unapologetically radical, more widely quoted than deeply read, which irritates me greatly. Borden was born in Harlem, New York in 1924, and he was the oldest of nine children whom he often had to care for and whom he loved deeply. He was the grandson of an enslaved African, grew up in poverty and in a strict religious household which was ruled by his stepfather, who he only ever referred to as his father. He had no idea who his biological father was, and although his relationship with his stepfather was fraught, Baldwin became, like his stepfather, a preacher of the gospel, something he sees as a fundamental moment in his formative years. Those three years in the pulpit, he says, I didn't realize it then. That is when I turned into a writer. That is what turned me into a writer, really, dealing with all that anguish and that despair and that beauty. The black church was one of the few places, of course, where black folk could tell the truth about what it meant to live in a white world. The church was the place where anguish and despair and beauty could mingle and sit alongside one another in the light of the gospel. Like Mahalia Jackson and Ella Fitzgerald and Aretha Franklin and Beyonce, it was the church that gave Baldwin his voice. It was in the pulpit that Baldwin learned the cadence of scripture and the grammar of theology. But it was also here that he began to realize that whilst black pain could be given voice within these walls, queer pain could not. He realized the deep lies we as Christians tell ourselves about ourselves and the masks we wear to hide from one another, ourselves, and even from God. And in a very real sense, I feel that it was Baldwin's early encounter with Christianity that forced him to realize that he had to break free from such falsehood if he was ever to breathe. And so he leaves the pulpit, free from the community rather than from the faith. And interestingly, this walking away coincides with his dawning awareness that he was not the straightforward heterosexual he thought he was. He didn't have much time either for very simple uh, gender binaries. For him, that was much more complicated. Baldwin comes at this point to a deeper awareness of his situatedness, his positionality. One of the things I remember as a, as a young man reading the autobiography of Malcolm X was the way in which Malcolm paid really close attention to his mother, to the way she behaved in the presence of men, and in particular white people, how his mother would become small, vulnerable, much to Malcolm's upset and hurt. He never understood why his mother changed shape literally in the presence of white folk. But with Baldwin, the attention from early on is totally on his father. He recalls, for example, the pride and sorrow and beauty of my father's face. 
For that man I called my father really was my father in every sense except the biological or literal one. He formed me and he raised me and he did not let me starve. And he gave me something, however harshly and however little I wanted it, which prepared me for an impending horror which he could not prevent. That impending horror was the day that Baldwin would discover what it meant to be a Negro in America. What it meant to live under the gaze of a people and structure which had no possible conception of a free black body. It's precisely what we as young black men who grew up in this city discover the first time we are stopped and searched, a way in which it completely changes your view, not just of yourself, but of other people. And for Baldwin, what was important was not just the relationship between the oppressed and the oppressor, between the slave and the master, but between the oppressed and themselves. For Baldwin, being consumed by hatred of the oppressor led to self-destruction, and yet there is one particular moment early on in Baldwin's life when he can't hold back. He walks into a restaurant and is told by a white waitress that they do not serve Negroes here, and he loses his cool and throws a glass, it might have been a pitcher actually, at her, and has to leg it from the place because a white mob are after him and so are the police. So as much as he tried to not let his anger and his rage get the better of him, there is one or two moments in his life where he just has enough. And at a point when what we might call a kind of directionlessness, a hopeless anger, which might have consumed him and was consuming many of the young men around him, in 1948, at the age of 24, Baldwin decides to up and leave for Paris with only $40 in his pocket. And he falls in love, not just with the city's culture and heritage, but with the whole of France, because France gave him space to be more himself with its people. In France, he often spoke about the fact that the issue was not being black, the issue was being American, actually. The, the, the problem was different. You know, he, he could go to France and he could, you know, get into the culture because he was a writer and a novelist and many other things, very articulate. Um, but being black wasn't the issue. The issue was that he wasn't French and he would never be French, no matter how much he spoke French and he did speak it fluently. But in France, he begins to meet people who are like him. He meets famous uh, French intellectuals like Simone de Beauvoir, um, Albert Camus and uh, Jean-Paul Sartre. And eventually he settles in a place called Saint-Paul-de-Vence in southeastern France. And speaking of this move, to France later in life, he talks about the necessity of this distance from America. He couldn't think clearly about it whilst he was in it. He couldn't write into what his people were enduring without getting some distance from the source of his pain. And that distance allowed him to kind of recreate himself. Most of his famous works were written in France in St. Paul de Vence, um, Giovanni's Room, Go Tell It on the Mountain, um, Notes of a Native Son, and some of his famous works were also written in Turkey, where he also lived for a short while. He wrote almost always by hand on a standard legal pad in his study, which he called My Torture Chamber. There's a similarity, I think, between James Baldwin and another person called Simone Weil. Um, Simone Weil, a philosopher, 
someone who ends up uh, starving herself to death, basically, in, in solidarity with what uh, people in Nazi Germany are experiencing. Um, Simone Weil says that attention is the purest form of generosity, that attention is basically love, it's prayer. And I think Baldwin also seems to see the attention he pays the world as a form of his love for the world. Baldwin was taught to see, and he said this himself, by his painter friend, the artist Beaufort Delaney. Delaney and Baldwin were friends firstly in New York and secondly in France, and it was a lifelong friendship in which Delaney definitely occupied the space of a kind of father figure for Jimmy. Baldwin and Delaney would walk the streets of the city together and Delaney would counsel Jimmy, teaching him how to respond to life as an artist. And Baldwin really does place his ability to see, to perceive things, um, to pay attention to the world um, as something that Delaney gave him through his artist's eye. In one essay he recalls, memory is a traitor and life does not contain the past tense. The sunset once or yesterday, the leaf that burned or the rain that fell have not really been seen unless one is prepared to see them every day. Baldwin knew that he lived in a world that would constantly demand that he lie about what he saw, that he lie about his experience. But each day he wakes up, he looks at the world within him and without him, and he decides to tell the truth about it. There are two things I think that shape Baldwin most. One is friendship. Um, he's friends with some really significant people, Marlon Brando, uh, Nina Simone, Miles Davis, Lorraine Hansberry. Um, but the other thing apart from friendship that shapes him is travel. His first trip to Africa with his younger sister is deeply um, formative. I think he's both enamored and disappointed by what he sees. Um, and he was very much aware that the, the way in which uh, black people in Africa were speaking about their struggle with racism was not exactly the same way in which he as an African-American would speak about it. But he was also impacted greatly by his first trip to Israel, somewhere that he wanted to live at one point, but he, he sees himself walking in the footsteps of the prophets and sees himself very much as a successor to the prophets. And he was greatly impacted by his friends, always speaking about the fact that he was writing throughout his life between assassinations. And you'll see on the handout that I've given you that his friends are shot all the time. So moving on to his thought, something we are often uh, led to fall into, a bit of a trap um, with people like Baldwin who we admire, is that we often sanitize them. We don't like to talk about the fact that Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, struggled when it came to fidelity. We don't like to talk about the fact that Malcolm X, um, until he was married, slept with men and women. We avoid talking about the fact that uh, Baldwin, throughout his life, had many suicide attempts. Many, at least three, very significant. Um, most notably in 1949, 1956 and 1968. Baldwin wasn't loved by everyone. He was mocked for his unmanly weeping in a feud with his mentor and referred to as Martin Luther Queen by many. He was accused of giving himself up to political sodomy and faced censorship at times for the publication of Giovanni's Room, um, but also for many other things. He was an open target 
of the FBI. And as much as Martin Luther King was pro-gay in his own way, at the I Have a Dream speech, um, Jimmy and Bayard Rustin, two black queer male writers, um, were told to stand back so that they weren't appearing right beside MLK. If you look at the pictures and the footage, Jimmy's there, um, but he's had to stand back from Martin Luther King because he was seen as being a bit too radical. And there's a wonderful story when uh, Jimmy is invited to St. John the Divine, the cathedral in New York, to um, accept a prize and to give a speech. And he stands up in the pulpit um, and in front of the dean and sub-dean, he calls President Nixon, I won't swear in church, but he calls him a mother in the cathedral from the pulpit. And there's a story that the dean turns to the sub-dean and the dean has just been recently appointed. And he says, gosh, that must be the first time anyone's ever used the word mother in the cathedral. And the young sub-dean is said to have turned to the dean and said, about time someone did. But you see that he didn't police himself. Wherever he was, he just spoke the truth as he saw it. But he was complicated. And I think that in part is what makes him so appealing. He is messy, full of paradox. He is really nobody's man, often used as the poster boy by the humanists. Too gay for the church, too friendly to white people for the Black Panthers and the Nation of Islam, too radical at times for Dr. King and the black middle classes, and too black for America. Baldwin is at home nowhere, and he does not allow any of us to acquiesce in the safety of our familiarity with him. Because just when you feel as though he's on your side, he strikes with some piercing universal truth which convicts and summons us, whoever we are, to do and be better, to do the work. So much that is true of my enemy, my opponent, is true when I'm honest, of me too. Baldwin was seriously committed to the notion that we could all be better. He clung to the biblical vision of a new heaven and a new earth given to us in Revelation, a world where the idols erected in the name of God were torn down and where the powerful ceased worshipping at the altar of injustice. We had to work for that world though. And Baldwin realised more and more that people were not wicked, but lazy. Now, I call him a theologian, not just because he breathed the language of the King James Version of the Bible, but because I think theologians always write out of a sense of exile. For theologians, God takes on a kind of cosmic significance, and God is our passion, our torment, and our delight. Unless, of course, you are a theologian comfortably situated in the empire, in which case God is just a slightly uh, better version of yourself. But Baldwin kept theology's source as the source. In other words, he found a constant inspiration in scripture. And God is in everything that James Baldwin writes. It's worth remembering, I think, that we are talking about someone who can be described in a whole multitude of ways as an essayist, a novelist, activist, playwright, poet, and orator. Now, I want to suggest, I'll be interested to know what you think about this afterwards, that there is a reason why the names Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa Parks, Malcolm X, W.E.B. Du Bois are more familiar to you than Bayard Rustin, Marsha P. Johnson, 
Paulie Murray and James Baldwin. Firstly, I think it's the fact that they, like Baldwin, survive what's happening in civil rights America. But I also think it's the fact that Baldwin, like the others I just mentioned, was not heterosexual. Baldwin would often say homosexual is not a noun. And in his work, he rendered black homosexuality as one possible manifestation of true, intimate human love. He sacralized it before anyone else in literature had done. But Baldwin's critique, his perspective, his understanding meant that so much of what he had to say, not just to American culture, but also about the church, nobody wanted to hear. In Go Tell It on the Mountain, he offers, I think, a really stunning critique of the community he comes out of, the black church. He talks about the uniform of the holy women and those who struggle to find the compromise between the way that led to everlasting life and the way that ended up in the pit. He, all of his black characters in Go Tell It on the Mountain are people who are deeply flawed and he can only write that way because he knows these people in real life. It shows how just beneath the surface of black Christian respectability so prevalent in our churches, just beneath the surface were pastors falling from grace and moments of domestic violence or addiction and how the elders in the church would dismiss the correct diagnoses which came from the mouths of the young on the basis that the older people were always right and always beyond critique. Baldwin saw born-again Christians as panic-stricken. Of one character, we're told how neither love nor humility had led her to the altar, but only fear. And God did not hear the prayers of the fearful, for the hearts of the fearful held no belief. God was not a source of solace in Baldwin's understanding, and religion was not a hiding place. He speaks powerfully of how God at a point in each of our lives stops being synonymous with safety. How sometimes it is in surrendering our dreams that we find freedom. God is the means by which we grow up, become responsible, become more honest. Now on the handout, you'll see that Dr. King was assassinated in 1968 not long after he spoke here, actually. And it's fair to say that much of Baldwin's hope died with Dr. King. It was a loss he never recovered from, actually. You'll see that he actually went into seclusion for a long time. And for him, it was the fact that white America was so threatened by Dr. King, who only ever preached love, and who was an apostle of nonviolence, the idea that he was such a threat that he had to be taken out troubled Jimmy, hugely, in the deepest parts of his soul. I think uh, Dr. King's death was the, the biggest uh, life-changing moment of his life, actually. Um, he's a very different person after King's assassination. And they did have a very close relationship. Um, when, when King dies, Baldwin goes into a very dark place. And one of his suicide attempts, actually, is right after Dr. King's assassination. There's a really remarkable moment, though, in Baldwin's life when he receives the invitation to address the World Council of Churches in Uppsala, Sweden, in July 1968. Now, just to contextualize this, uh, MLK is assassinated in the April, 
a young Desmond Tutu, not yet a bishop, but a priest, uh, is preaching in South Africa and decides to join protesters and something shifts in that act of solidarity. Tutu begins getting involved with the black consciousness movement and then Kennedy is assassinated in June. The world was on fire in many ways and all around the issue of race. And Baldwin being Baldwin, getting this invitation to speak to the World Council of Churches just does what he always does. He speaks from the head and the heart. It's hard to imagine an invitation like that being made today, but I think the World Council of Churches did the right thing back then. He says this, I address to you as one of the creatures, one of God's creatures, whom the Christian church has most betrayed. Part of the dilemma of the Christian church is the fact that it opted, in fact, for power and betrayed its own first principles, which were a responsibility to every living soul. The church is in great danger, not merely because the black people say it is, but because people are always in great danger when they know what they should do and refuse to act on that knowledge. Baldwin looks at the church and all he sees are those who have rationalised their crimes for so long that they have put themselves out of touch with themselves. Whether it was racism or homophobia, for Baldwin it was not simply just a matter of prejudice, but a matter of cowardice. Baldwin was clear that so much of the world's energy was expended in reassuring white people that they did not see what they see. To Baldwin, white people were those who imagined that history flatters them since they wrote it. People who remain proud of a history for which they do not wish to pay, yet continue to benefit from, and who end up in their avoidance, impaled upon that history by the light of truth. One can measure very neatly the white American's distance from his conscience, Baldwin says, and from himself by observing the distance between white America and black America. Yes, there could be reconciliation. Yes, there could be love. But only once we have told, heard and faced the truth. There is a reason we have a Wakefield and a Manchester and a Falmouth in Jamaica. There's a reason there's an Aberdeen in North Carolina. There's a reason the Church of England owns so much land and has so much money. We need to talk about that before we can just move on. Baldwin said that although one cannot really be educated to believe a lie, one can be forced to surrender to it. Baldwin visited London at least three times, it's hard to imagine that he didn't come to this place. He was someone who made life work hard for him. He was someone caught up in the work of alterity because of who he was. And so when I think about what Borden might say to us or how Borden might help us as Christians, um, I think he would challenge us by the fact that he responded to life and to God in his way. He wasn't prepared to uh, wear anyone else's clothes or follow anyone else's path. He was going to be himself, whether God liked it or not. He would encourage us, I think, to learn to walk in the dark in a time 
and moment in the life of the world where it all seems violent with the love and the absence of God. There's a part of me when I think of how Baldwin can help us as Christians. There's a part of me that wants to answer that question by saying that if the church had listened to Baldwin all those years ago, we wouldn't be in the mess we're in. But it's a bit too late for that. So I'll have to say something else. I think the key question I want to pose to all of us this afternoon is, is what kind of world do you long for? What kind of world do you long for? Because if you can't imagine it, you're definitely not working towards it. What kind of world do you long for? And if we can't imagine a world that is different to this world, we have a serious problem. Um, because it means that our, our hope and our imaginations are being limited by what we see. James Baldwin was obsessed by the life of Jesus. And Jesus, in the eighth chapter of John's Gospel, says so powerfully, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Baldwin understood that, but for Baldwin, the truth about the past is not that it is too brief or too superficial, but only that we, having turned our faces so resolutely away from it, have never demanded from the past what it has to give. I think Baldwin would be appalled at how many Christian people seem to latch on to the falsehoods that fly in the face of the evidence, particularly in our nation. Christians who deny, for example, that the church is institutionally racist, or who pretend that trans people are not being uniquely harassed, and targeted by society right now, or who think that capital punishment is just, and that refugees dying in the channel is not of ultimate concern to God, Baldwin would wonder how such people could claim to be following Jesus of Nazareth as we see him in the gospel. I think Baldwin would be bemused too by the belief some have about black integration into the Church of England. He would probably remind us that if it was to happen, the COV would have to become something very different, and it doesn't want to. Despite the fact that this is a church that you couldn't have built without us or sustained without us and our exploitation. I think he would laugh, as I do, at the COV wanting to be anti-racist yet homophobic at the same time, trying to be both Moses and Pharaoh, as a country, he'd probably write a powerful essay about how the word woke is used to shut down really vital conversations for the flourishing of England. He would be concerned at the abuse people face for simply saying that they don't think Rule Britannia ought to be sung at uh, the, um, thank you, the prophets. You know, one of our most gifted musicians shares a view on how he feels about being in that space and partaking in that, and we throw abuse at him. We're not going to hear his truth again. We have to decide what we want. Do we want people to be honest with us or not? And how, how much do people have to do to be British enough to say what they think and feel 
about this country? Or is there any way to be British to not have skin which is black or brown? Right? We need to ask questions about that. Do we want people's honesty or not? What's the cost of abusing people to the point where they fall silent so that we don't actually hear what they think or feel? And yet with all that, I think boredom would also summon us, I think, to pay attention to the pain of our past, to the reality that racism and homophobia don't just dehumanize the victims, but the perpetrators too. You know, a church becoming more inclusive isn't about bringing in LGBT people and making them feel better. It's also about the well-being of all of us, about our credibility and integrity before God, about the church actually looking like what the church ought to look like. If we are to recover from our past as a world, we both have to look back and name the hurt. Because all of us are different people because of where we've come from and the histories we carry in our very bodies. The loneliness of our rage, the burden of our privilege makes us different. Uh, many of you will know the story of Job in the Bible. I won't assume everybody, but yes, most people know the story of Job. Uh, story of Job, he is someone who is righteous and walks before the Lord in uprightness. He's a very good man. Um, he uh, ends up having his name presented to God by Satan, basically, or God says to, to the devil, you know, have you, have you considered my servant Job? You know, he will surely uh, respond differently to you than everyone else. And long story cut short, Job loses everything, everything, and then gets it back again. And people often see that story as a really hopeful, optimistic thing because, you know, everything that Job lost, his, his sons, uh, all of his livestock get restored to him and the story ends decently. But the reality is, and Baldwin says this, Job's story has changed Job forever. Job is not the same at the end at all. And actually when Job's friends go to see him when he's in grief and mourning, all three of them say the same thing. Gosh, they're shocked at how awful he looks because the pain of his loss has changed him. Although everything was restored to him, the pain that had woven itself into his story, the suffering that entered his very bones, the torment and despair that his closest friends and family had to witness, all that for Job meant that he was someone else because pain changes us. This country is not what it was before the brutality of empire. Pain changes us. To encounter myself is to encounter you. This is love, Borden would say. Knowing that my soul trembles teaches me that yours does too. And unless I can honour that, the fact that both your and my soul trembles, then neither of us can live. The world in which people find themselves, he says, is not simply a vindictive plot imposed on them from above. It is also the world they have helped to make. They have helped to make and helped to sustain it. The concepts contained in words like freedom, justice, democracy are not common concepts. On the contrary, they are rare. People are not born knowing what these are. It takes enormous and above all individual effort to arrive at the respect for other people that these words imply. Indignation and goodwill are not enough to make the world better. 
We have all had the experience of finding that our reactions and perhaps even our deeds have denied beliefs we thought were ours. And this is the danger of arriving at arbitrary decisions in order to avoid the risks of thought, of striking arbitrary attitudes. If the attitude is a cover, what it is covering will inevitably be revealed. Jimmy was quite clear that not all Christians shared the same hope or spoke the same language or even belonged to the same church, despite what they themselves may claim. And part of the problem was that so many Christians cut themselves off from those they considered other. We still do it so much today. We work against one another largely because there is no radical love between us. And where there is no love, there exists no closeness. And where there exists no closeness, there is no possibility for truth to be spoken or heard without fear. And condemnation is easier than wonder. Borden would put it like this, one cannot risk love without risking humiliation. A Christian community which loves, a Christian community with porous boundaries risks humiliation, the kind of humiliation God risked in becoming one of us in Christ in the incarnation. I'm going to close, but I want to leave with you first one quote by the Reverend Professor Willie James Jennings, who in a sermon on Acts says these words, I am convinced that the future of the church will be found only in the places where people have learned to desire one another. And out of that desire to care for one another and to stand together against the forces of death. Yes, multiracial, yes, multicultural, yes, people of every orientation, but fundamentally people who have found their way to love through desire. They are together not because they have to be together, not because they are bound by some ethic or principle, but because they want to be together. Baldwin died in France on the 1st of December 1987 from stomach cancer, aged just 63 years old, with his brother David and his lover Lucien beside him. His funeral was held at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine, New York, St. Paul's Sister Cathedral, on the 20th of December. In attendance was the French ambassador. Maya Angelou was there, Cicely Tyson, Stokely Carmichael, Amiri Baraka and Toni Morrison, the most eloquent writer in the English language, I think, and to whom it fell to give Baldwin's eulogy. And I'm going to close with her words, which I'm going to quote at length. Jimmy, there is too much to think about you and too much to feel. The difficulty is your life refuses summation. It always did and it invites contemplation instead. Like many of us left here, I thought I knew you. Now I discover that in your company, it was myself I knew. That is the astonishing gift of your art and your friendship. You gave us ourselves to think about, to cherish. I never heard a single command from you, yet the demands you made on me, the challenges you issued to me, were nevertheless unmistakable 
even if unenforced, that I work and think at the top of my form, that I stand on moral ground, but know that ground must be shored up by mercy, that the world is before me and I need not take it or leave it as when I came in. Well, the season was always Christmas with you there, and like one aspect of that scenario, you did not neglect to bring at least three gifts. You gave me a language to dwell in, a gift so perfect it seems my own invention. I have been thinking your spoken and written thoughts for so long I believe they were mine. I have been seeing the world through your eyes for so long I believe that clear, clear view was my own. Even now, even here, I need you to tell me what I am feeling and how to articulate it. No one possessed or inhabited language for me the way you did. You made American English honest, genuinely international. You exposed its secrets and reshaped it until it was only, until it was truly modern biologic, representative, humane. You stripped it of ease and false comfort and fake innocence and evasion and hypocrisy. And in place of deviousness was clarity. In place of soft, plump lies was a lean, targeted power. In place of intellectual disingenuousness and what you called exasperating egocentricity, you gave us undecorated truth. You replaced lumbering platitudes with an upright elegance. You went into that forbidden territory and decolonized it robbed it of the jewel of its naivety, and ungated it for black people so that in your wake we could enter it, occupy it, restructure it in order to accommodate our complicated passion, not our vanities, but our intricate, difficult, demanding beauty, our tragic, insistent knowledge, our lived reality, our sleep, classical imagination, all the while refusing to be defined by a language that has never been able to recognize us. In your hands, language was handsome again. In your hands, we saw how it was meant to be, neither bloodless nor bloody and yet alive. The second gift was your courage, which you let us share. The courage of one who could go as a stranger in the village and transform the distances between people into intimacy with the whole world Courage to understand that experience in ways that made it a personal revelation for each of us. The third gift was hard to fathom and even harder to accept. It was your tenderness. A tenderness so delicate I thought it could not last. But last it did and enveloped me it did. Yours was a tenderness of vulnerability that asked everything expected everything, and like the world's own Merlin, provided us with the ways and means to deliver. I suppose that is why I always was a bit better behaved around you, smarter, more capable, wanting to be worth the love you lavished on us, and wanting to be steady enough to witness the pain you had witnessed, and were tough enough to bear while it broke your heart, wanting to be generous enough to join your smile with one of my own and reckless enough to jump on in that laugh you laughed. Because our joy and our laughter were not only all right, they were necessary. 
You knew, didn't you, how I needed your language and the mind that formed it. How I relied on your fierce courage to tame wildernesses for me. How strengthened I was by the certainty that came from knowing you would never hurt me. You knew, didn't you, how I loved your love. You knew. This then is no calamity. No, this is jubilee. Our crown, you said, has already been bought and paid for. All we have to do, you said, is wear it. And we do, Jimmy. You crowned us. The work of the church is, I think, to stand on that moral ground which is shored up by mercy and to tell that undecorated truth, to crown God's children with dignity and worth and to embody both tenderness and courage as it seeks, as Baldwin did, to transform the world which God, in his goodness, has given us and will not save without us. Thank you. <laughs>